Please find the fourth chapter of the book of Romans. I'm going to be tonight in the first 15 verses. Let's pray together. Father, often we take your word for granted. And we come lightly to the word of God, carelessly and flippantly. We come with a kind of a blasé attitude. And I pray that you'll help us, Father, to sense tonight how deeply, deeply profound is this word, that this indeed is God's word to man. And let us not be careless in our handling of it, nor indifferent to its message, nor unconcerned about its truth. And that in an age where people have gone after every wind of doctrine, I pray that you will ground us in the eternal truth. For I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Milton Gregory is buried under the soil at the University of Illinois. Illinois. He gave his life to education and was the administrator of uh, several schools and universities. He published a handbook for education called The Seven Laws of Teaching. And in this little handbook, he tells about the things that make teaching successful. I want to read you the fourth law in this book. Truth to be taught, quote, truth, truth to be taught must be learned through truth already known. In other words, we, we learn the new and the unfamiliar from the old and the familiar. It's not so much that we um, begin to apprehend or grasp new truths, but we begin to understand and have clarification of truths that we already have grasped. Um, you know, there are some things that you know that you don't know you know. And according to Gregory, um, we learn new things through the old that we already know. The best way to know and learn from the old and familiar is through illustration. Because knowledge really is a chain linked together with thoughts, and the weld of those links really our illustration. The best way to teach something, I'm convinced, is to build your case through illustration. You ask anybody what he remembers about these unforgettable sermons that are preached here, and he'll tell you it's the illustrations that are told. Abraham Lincoln was a master illustrator. And while he was president of the United States, he was on a tour, a speaking engagement of all the Ivy League schools on the East Coast. And he noticed right away that there was a man in the audience at every place he stopped to, to bring a, a message, an address, the same person was in the audience taking notes. He found out that he was the professor of rhetoric at Yale University and was somewhat intimidated by the man's presence. And so after one of his addresses one night, he finally cornered the man and asked him why he was so interested in following him around and listening to his, his speeches. And the man said, I am captivated 
by your illustration. Spurgeon once talked to his uh, group of ministerial students and said, Sermons are like a house. You're building a house with a sermon, and the windows, the illustrations are the windows that let the light in. Then he said, poignantly, gentlemen, be sure you let enough light in. The Apostle Paul was a master of illustrations. He he punctuated profound theological truth with illustration. And so the fourth chapter of the book of Romans is a bank, a reservoir of illustration. And there are illustrations built upon illustration. And they all center around one major illustration of one profound theological truth. And that theological truth, I'm convinced, found in chapter 3, verse 28, is the pivotal verse of Scripture for the book of Romans. I want to read that verse before I go any further. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now that's a heavy statement, especially if you're a Jew. And the Apostle Paul um, knew that no Jew is going to believe that. I mean, he came to this point in this theological discourse and made this statement, this profound, revolutionary statement that no man is justified by works, but that he is justified by faith apart from works, knowing that no Jew is going to believe that. The Apostle Paul must have thought something like this. Now, what they're going to say when they come to deal with that truth is, now wait a minute, we're justified, we're given right standing with God because we're children of Abraham. And Abraham was chosen by God, and out of Abraham's loins, God's own people were chosen. And we have our right standing, our justification before God because we're children of Abraham. What about Abraham? And so Paul is saying, in essence, if I can help them to see that this truth of Romans 3.28 applies to the father of the Jewish nation as well, if I can help them to see that Abraham himself was justified by faith apart from works of the law, the father of the Jewish nation, then they'll get it. And that's what he sets out to do. And he's going to try, by illustration, to help the Jew to see that even the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham, the most uh, revered of all men in the Jewish community, was indeed justified by faith. And he begins with a kind of a rhetorical conclusion. Let's read this rhetorical conclusion. It's verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now I need to read that from another translation that helps you kind of understand. This Philip's translation is this. If justification were achieved, he could, quote, he could quite fairly be praised of what he achieved, but not, I'm sure, proud before God. Now, 
Suddenly, that seems more confusing than the American Standard. It didn't when I read it from the J.B. Phillips translation. What he's saying is this. Now, let's just assume that man is justified by works. That means that Abraham is justified by works. And if he's justified by works, he, he has something to boast about before men, but not before God. Because Abraham was declared righteous by God. He didn't achieve righteousness by works. And so his boasting, even though he could boast before men, he stands bankrupt before God. And then he says in verse 3, let's just quit pretending. Let's not pretend anymore. Let's see what the Scriptures say. Let's go to this book that you, the Jews, have claimed to be the reason why you know that you have righteousness with God. This, your own book. Let's see what the Scripture says. And he quotes from Genesis chapter 15. Look at verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Now I want you to do something with me now. I want you to... Uh, just participate in this as best you can. I want you to turn to the 15th chapter of the book of Genesis. And if you've got one of these little ribbons, you just put that place there. If you don't, we'll put your finger there, a piece of paper. Because we're going to be coming back there in a minute. Now the Apostle Paul is quoting from Genesis 15. And this is what he says. This is what the Scripture says, that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Now that word reckoned is an accounting term. You have any accountants here? And it means to credit to someone's account in the financial community, a financial world. And the picture is that Abraham was bankrupt, but someone came and credited to his account righteousness. So this bankrupt man who had no righteousness of his own, someone came to him, his account and credited to his account righteousness and did so in response to Abraham's faith. I want you to get that down and nail that down uh, completely. A man bankrupt with right in righteousness and someone comes in response to his faith and credits to his account righteousness. Let's see what that, how that occurred. Turn to the 15th chapter of Genesis, and we'll read verses 1 through 6. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me, since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, his servant, really. And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir, the son of his servant. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside. Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now just pause there a minute. Put that on, push the pause button. Now Abraham had a decision to make. And the decision he had to make was this. He could either believe God or not believe Him. 
He could either trust God or not trust Him. That was His choice. That was His option. Those were His options. He could believe in the Lord or He could not believe in Him. And He was confronted with that. Look at verse 6. Then He believed in the Lord, and He reckoned it to Him as righteousness. Now the interesting thing about verse 6 is that it doesn't say that Abraham believed that he would have, his wife would have a baby, that he would have a son. It says that he believed in the Lord. Now if you've been born again, if you've really been saved, or whatever term you want to use, however we want to describe that is in the Christian world, something like that has happened to you. For there was a time when you realized that you lived under the God of the heavens and there was nothing in you that could, that could present yourself to Him in favor. And so you believed in the Lord and in your believing in Him, in your trusting in Him, He credited that as righteousness to you. Now if you've been born again, that's happened to you. If you've been born again, it has not been the result of any kind of, a, of human effort or human achievement. There came a time, a point in your life when you remember that you were confronted with the fact that you lived bankrupt under the God of heaven. And the only way that you could be presented righteous was to trust Him. And you did that. Now that's what Romans 4.3 means. Now the Apostle Paul, who is this master of illustration, illustrates the illustration, believe it or not, with verse 4. Look at that. Now the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Now all of us have, at least, you know, we've all, I think, uh, adults have been employed or are now employed. Some of you may be retired, but you, you've, been, you've, been on, you've been employed and you've been responsible either to a supervisor, a boss, or a board of directors. And you're accountable to them. And because you were employed, you were responsible to carry out the requirements of the employment. And when you did that, you were paid a wage. And the wage you earned was payment for the employment or the service that was, rent, that was rendered. And when you got your check on Friday or the first of the month, you knew they weren't doing you a favor by paying you that. However, I have seen some employees that I thought that they were, <laughs> when you paid them, they were, you were doing them a favor. But for the most part, you, you, you knew that when you did your 40 hours and you put in your time and they paid you, you were getting what was yours. And you received money in payment for what was done. Now the Apostle Paul is building illustration upon an illustration. And the illustration is this, that's not God's plan for salvation. God has a don't do it yourself kit. And all He wants is for you to take it and the way you receive that, that righteousness is not as the result, by the result of the, of the employment or the work you've done, but as His special gift. And one of the most important words in this 
this section is the word ungodly. Look at that, underline it. He justifies the ungodly. Who are the objects of his love? The ungodly. And that's the heritage of Abraham. Now, I made a discovery one time. I like to shook me, and, and, and I think it probably most of us, uh, uh, you know, have never really thought that, realized this or hadn't thought about it that much. Abraham was a pagan. His father was an idolater who worshipped pagan idols. And every evidence in Old Testament Scripture, and we've studied this in our class in the book of Genesis, every evidence of Old Testament Scripture is that Abraham himself, in the tradition of his father, worshipped pagan idols, was an idolater. And when God approached Abraham the first time, he approached not a godly man, he didn't approach a man who even worshipped Yahweh. He approached a man who was a, a pagan worshipping pagan idols. So when God approached him and revealed himself to Abraham, he was revealing himself to the ungodly and he justifies the ungodly through his faith in Jesus Christ. And the illustration and the point is this that God doesn't make you justified after you've wrapped up your life and done good things and, and, and done your best to live and serve the Lord. He comes to you in, in revelation to the ungodly, to the unbeliever, and confronts you with that revelation and that righteousness is achieved or received through your faith in Him. And then he quotes, I mean, he's pulling in the heavy guns here. He quotes David. He said, just as David also speaks of the blessing upon man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works, and he quotes Psalm 32. Now sometime this week I'd encourage you to read Psalm 32. Psalm 32 was this marvelous statement that, uh, that, that just exploded out of the heart of David on the heels of his terrible sin. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And, and what Paul is saying, well, he said, just remember what David said. After David's terrible sin, he came to know the forgiveness of God. And, and, and not just the fact that God forgives sin, but that he buries that sin and never holds it against man again. And it came at the point of David's confession. And you read Psalm 32. And David is crying out there, pouring out his heart that he'd sinned against God. And God had moved in to forgive him of that sin. And what Paul is saying is this, that this forgiveness and this no longer holding this sin against David was not the result of David straightening up his life and doing good things. It came on the heels of his sin and when, it, when he confessed that. Now let's read this passage through, the Jew, through, through Jewish eyes. Verse 9. The Jews immediately is thinking about circumcision. Now I know that's a kind of a delicate subject to get into. For us it's a physical thing. To the Jew it was more than a physical thing. It was a religious rite that set them up as righteous. Now here's Paul thinking, 
If I can show these people that the rite of circumcision occurs after, after Abraham has been declared righteous, they'll get it. I want you to hang right in here with me because this is so relevant to our time. Paul is saying, I'll show them that the righteousness of God was credited to Abraham long before the rite of circumcision. All right, I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 15 with me. Genesis chapter 15, and we'll read verse 6 again. And it says, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteous. If you've got a pencil, just put out in your margin that at the time that happened, Abraham was 85 years of age. Then I want us to turn over to the 16th chapter and verse 16. The 16th chapter, verse 16, a significant thing in Abraham's life was the birth of Ishmael. Now Ishmael was born to Hagar, the handmaiden of Sarai. And so Abraham, verse 16 says, was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. One year later, Ishmael is born. Turn to the 17th chapter and we'll read verse, verses 22 through 24. And when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all the servants were born in his house, and they were circumcised. Verse 24. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. Now I don't know if, you know if my math is correct or not, but it seems to me that 14 years after Abraham was declared to have right standing with God. The rite of circumcision was performed. That ought to be enough evidence to the Jews who read this that this rite, this ceremony, was not that which accomplished righteousness, but was, as he says in verses 10 and 11, was the sign and the seal of righteousness. In my uh, study, there's a document there. It has a, uh, it's the uh, graduation diploma of, uh, of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. It has a seal on it. It says, I earned my Master of Divinity degree from over there. And that seal, it's in the bottom of that, and the center part of that is the sign and the seal that authenticates that diploma. Now, if there's nothing on the diploma, just the seal, that'd mean anything. If there's the writing there, you know, and no seal, that doesn't mean anything. But the writing there that indicates that I, uh, you know, made it through Southwestern Seminary, and the seal is there to, as the sign that authenticates that event. Now, Paul is saying something that the Jews must have recoiled at is this. That works, watch this, 
that works are the sign and the seal that authenticates righteousness, but do not accomplish it. Isn't that what James was talking about when he said that faith that saves goes to work? And isn't this at the heart of what Paul is saying, that faith saves apart from works, but works authenticate it? And you can take baptism, and you should take baptism. And I know I have some very close personal friends who believe in baptismal regeneration, but baptism is not a part of the experience of, of righteousness. It is the sign that authenticates it. And works do not accomplish righteousness or right standing. They are the sign that authenticates it. And it is true that if there is genuine righteousness, there will be baptism and works. And, and it's, it doesn't mean that they aren't essential. It just means they're not essential to salvation. Now the Jews had one more question. And the question is verse 13. What about the law? What are you going to do with the law? Because the Jew, you have the law and you work it out, and that accomplishes righteousness. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, Faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Look at this. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. I'll tell you what, I've struggled with that. And what that means? It means that the law just makes you guilty. I mean, what do you do when you see some, something that says don't do something? Isn't that what you want to do? I mean, in that human nature? You ever seen these signs that say, do not touch? What do you do? You tell me. You touch it, right? So wet paint, do not touch. First thing I want to do is go over and touch that. And the fact is that, that where there is a law that says you can't do this or you must not do this. Somebody was telling me the other day, somebody told me, uh, that, that I couldn't do that and that just made me want to do it that much more. That's what he's talking about. He's, you got the law and the law says thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. All that makes you want to do is go ahead and break the law. Now let me give you Gregory's seventh command, seventh law in this little book. Listen to this. The completion, test, and confirmation of teaching must be made in view of application. Let me tell you what that says. It says that you can hear this stuff from now until the end of the age, but until you begin to apply this, it's of no value. And the whole point of all of this, you know, the, the, the scripture, the theology of the book of Romans is not for us to take and put in our pocket. The whole fact is that it's written in order that man might respond in application. And you've heard that illustration over and over again about the guy who made his living by walking a tightrope. You've heard that? 
high wire. And he stretched this high wire across Niagara Falls. I've heard this story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's true whether it happened or not. And he, he stretched this high wire across Niagara Falls and, and, and the crowd of people was there. And he said, how many of you believe that I can walk that tightrope across the falls? And everybody cheered him on. They wanted to see him do it. So he walked across on the tight wire, high wire. When he got back to the other side, he, he got a wheelbarrow. And he, wheelbarrow. He said, how many of you believe that I can walk this high wire and push this wheelbarrow? Is that how you pronounce a wheelbarrow? That's how you say it out in Knox County. And so he, he walked that tightrope, that high wire, pushing that, that, uh, that thing that has one wheel on it. When he, when he got back over to the other side, he said, How many of you believe that I can push a man in that wheelbarrow across that high wire? And I mean, everybody was cheering him all by then. And there was one guy kind of down at the front he was really into it. He was really cheering. You bet. I, I, I think, amen, go to it. Get after it. And he turned to the guy and said, well, get in. Now, the truth is, folks, listen to me carefully. Truth is that the only way, the only way that a man can have right standing with God is by placing his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything else is, is, follows that and is secondary to that and contributes to it. And you can say, I believe that. And I know that's the truth and that's the way you get saved. But you'll be lost until you do it. Father, we thank you for the hope that rests in Christ Jesus and that apart from what we can do in our own human effort or cannot do, to believe in Christ, to believe in the Lord, to trust Him, to put our life upon Him, our eternal destiny upon Him, gains for us right standing and we can face the approaching death in the awareness we've placed our faith in Christ him alone Lord I pray tonight for those outside of the Lord trusting in any other achievement any other will I pray that you'll help us to trust in him alone for I ask in Jesus name for his sake there are three invitations tonight one it's an invitation for you to, to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ A strange sense tonight that there's there are some maybe on television or watching by television or in this place who have never ever really personally committed their life to Christ. You've been trusting in what you yourself can accomplish. Would you come tonight simply to Jesus?
maybe to come to join the church or to rededicate yourself to him. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.